This podcast series is brought to you by the University of Sussex. If you're curious about what makes some apps successful and others not, this series gives you a valuable insight into seeing if your app has got what it takes. With the help of three successful app founders, we'll be investigating and answering some of your questions. I'm Chris O'Hare, your host and resident app expert with 10 years experience in software development and founder of award-winning technology consultancy, Hair Digital. We've built apps for businesses big and small. This is How to Make an App. In this episode, we'll be talking about scaling your app. So you've launched your app and it's been a success. You've validated that your idea is a problem worth solving and people are willing to pay for it. And so you can see a future to your app. Well, next we need to build an infrastructure to allow your app to grow, otherwise known as scaling. There's two parts to scaling, scaling the technology and scaling the business, which we'll talk about that one first. But in essence, it's everything you're doing now, but more of it. So there's two approaches to scaling your business. You may wish to grow on your profits alone, otherwise known as bootstrapping, or you can take investment and grow at a much faster pace, but with a higher chance of running out of cash if you can't cover your costs with your profits. One study looked at over 3,200 startups and found that 74% of them failed because they tried to scale up too quickly. If you bootstrap your startup, you'll have more time to find the perfect market fit rather than just throwing cash at the problem. Be under no illusion that because your startup solves a problem for a small amount of customers, it doesn't mean it's perfect for a larger number of customers to sustain the need for rapid growth. By staying small, you will show more finesse in eking out the most of your cash and be more strategic in your approach. But obviously, you may risk a competitor overtaking you and taking that market share. Growing your startup quicker means that you can experiment quicker to identify what works and doesn't work. But don't underestimate the fact that managing larger teams is a far more complex process and you'll probably need to have middle managers to do so. When you grow too quickly, you could lose sight of the company ethos, which could be the differentiator between you and your competition. Either way, you're probably going to need to get help as you'll only have a limited amount of hours in a day. So you'll need to hire employees or outsource your problems to others. And my advice on this is to hold off hiring until it becomes detrimental to your growth. Why you might ask, well, you become ruthless with your time and make sure that the most impactful things in your day get done. It's incredibly easy to slip into managing people rather than working on the business, which at the end of the day is priority number one. Obviously, there's a limit to this advice. And if you need professionals to do the job in a fraction of the time, then it's certainly worth weighing up the time to cost benefits. It's also incredibly important to understand in detail what you're hiring for and what they need to do to get this job done. And there's no better way than if you've been doing it yourself. I've seen startups throw away money to employees or agencies who weren't needed. And that's because the founders weren't involved or didn't understand their job roles. So they couldn't see it. But always get professional advice. The amount of times I've seen businesses that have made bad decisions, it's almost always because they never got an expert to tell them what to do. 
And one bit of advice could get them on the right path, saving a ton of time and money. And don't spend money if you don't have to. The age old saying cash is king still reigns true. Startups run out of money fast and it's one of the biggest reasons they die. If you can elongate the runway, you'll have a bigger opportunity of succeeding. Now, runway is a startup term for how much time you have left with the money you have. And if you do have to spend, try to cover your costs from profits or get investment. I never recommend borrowing money. You'll hear from our guests later of how they kept as lean as possible. The parts of the startup that tend to grow first is operations, marketing and sales, and of course, the technology team. These are the three most vital and time-consuming parts of a tech startup. When it comes to the technology, you need to turn your MVP into something that can scale. To do that, you're going to need to figure out how many users your app can sustain today and how many new users it can cope with over the next few years according to your growth. And then you need to build out the infrastructure to cope with this growth. You're going to need to optimize the rough and ready code that was developed as part of your MVP to save time into something that is efficient and optimized so it doesn't fall over when your app gets featured on TV. You'd be surprised how many websites and software crash with some minor publicity. They didn't have a plan on how they would cope with it. You'll also need to have servers that can balance the load across multiple server locations around the world. And not all developers are skilled in building out this kind of infrastructure. So you'll need a technical team that is more diverse to cope with these differing technologies. You'll most likely need front-end developers, back-end developers, app developers, DevOps engineers, and now you're a bigger target, you're probably going to need to hire the services of a penetration tester. A pen tester will try and hack into your app to ensure that other more malicious hackers don't succeed and plaster your user's data across the web or sell it to the highest bidder. At this stage, you'll also want to expand out the features and to do this, we'll go back to the loop of iterative development that we discussed in the first episode, where you'll continue this loop to test new ideas, find out what the customer wants and improve their experience. And this becomes your startup's development engine. The goal is ultimately to increase the amount of new subscriptions and lower the churn rate. Now, churn is when people stop subscribing to your app. But for every feature you add, you'll also add another layer of complexity, something else to support when a customer asks about it and that it doesn't break any of the other features on the app already. Building another feature isn't just as simple as when you first started out. You'll have so many more things to take into account. And this is why successful tech companies have hundreds of people just working on one feature. Now, when it comes to the operations team, this is all about the administrative tasks of running a business from finances to HR, management to customer support. This can be a huge drain on your time that doesn't add a whole lot of value to your business, but has to be done. Plus, it's incredibly boring. When scaling, try to automate a lot of these repetitive processes using systems. Or you can outsource to specialists who have the sole focus of delivering that service or at the very least delegate to others in your team. Figure out the time to cost ratio to work out if that investment is worth it. And most of the time it will be. 
And we've already covered marketing in some detail in the last episode, but to scale marketing, you need to do more of it now. You'll have specialists for pay-per-click, for SEO, for social media, even conversion optimization. But also use marketing to look at pushing into new market sectors that your app could comfortably serve, but has been neglected because your marketing strategy beforehand has been focused on a niche. Also quite a milestone for startups is when they open up an office internationally. But you may need to take into account different languages, translating the app and adjusting the design accordingly, which takes on another layer of complexity when building out new features. Just remember, the bigger your app gets, everything else gets bigger with it. Earlier, I spoke with Peter Lloyd, co-founder of Trimit, who was a student at the University of Sussex when the company was first founded. About six years ago, I met Darren through an anonymous location-based app called Yik Yak. And he actually put out a post and he was like, I've got a bug with my code. And stupidly enough, I put my number online for everyone to see. But luckily enough, Darren actually contacted me. And I met him in person and he said, I've not actually got a bug. I need you to make this app with me. This was at university at Sussex. The following summer, we kind of uh, developed this app and originally it was a booking platform for barbers. And we managed to sign up over 300 barber shops in Brighton and London. But we had this issue where we couldn't tailor the experience because we couldn't tell the barber what to do. They were just using our platform to, as a scheduler and people weren't getting their trims on time and we had a few issues. Then with our last £10,000, we decided, let's stop this, let's do a crazy idea. And we decided to convert a Ford Transit into a mobile barbershop. And then from then, we've grown, we've built more vans, built more of a team around us. So when you came up with the mobile barbershop van, what made you think that that was a good idea? When we originally started Trimmer anyway, the idea was, you know, Darren was waiting four hours in a barbershop and he just didn't have the time. So that's always been a core part of our company. We wanted to be able to control the experience a lot more. We still wanted to save people time. So actually, you know, let's make it even more efficient and bring the barbershop to the customer. So you've now decided to buy a van. You've got a van. What was the next step in the process so we knew we needed to grow the business in terms of the amount of vans and also the amount of barbers running these vans but as this happened we were straight out of uni we were managing these barbers but we realized actually we're not managers you know that's not our core task in life you know we're entrepreneurs we like building technology we like building products we grew and hired more barbers, had the more vans. But actually what we started to realise is it wasn't scalable. You know, we would hit a limit at, you know, if it was 50 or 100, we'd still hit that limit. And we wanted to get to 50,000 barbers using our platform. So we realised quite quickly that actually the way to do this was to franchise the model. You know, allow a barber to partner with us rather than working for us. And also be able to enhance their experience and be able to like let them make more money in a barbershop at the moment there's three types of payment structures it's either commission which on average is 40 to 50 percent of a booking which is quite a lot 
or it's renting a chair, which on average is £250 a week, or it's a salary model, which on average is about twenty to £25,000 a year. With these figures in mind, we wanted to build a partnership model which turned into this franchise model where they would actually be able to make a lot more money than they were currently making in the barbershop and be able to feel like this is their own company. A lot of barbers are self-employed, so you know they don't like being told what to do. And at Trimit, we don't want to tell them what to do. We want them to grow with us. You recently raised some money. How did you go about that? So we recently raised 1.1 million. This was through the Future Fund scheme, which is a government-backed scheme where they'll actually provide risk-free capital along with our current investors. So most of the investment came from one of our biggest angel investors, and we had a few smaller angel investors and a VC firm which also put into this round. So how many rounds have you currently raised? So we've raised a friends and family round, pre-seed, a bridge round, and now a seed round which was the 1.1 million. In each one of those stages, what did you kind of use the money for? We actually took out a loan from a bank for the van of uh, £10,000. We created the idea and made the van. And then we got into a situation where we were like, actually, now we need to find a barber. (laughs) You know, we weren't sure what we were doing, but we knew this was our last pivot. You know, let's go for it and see if it works. After that, we built this van And then we were like, cool. We were all working at our homes. I was still at university at this point. Dan was back in London. And then we were like, we need more people to do this and we need to actually have a place to do this in. So that's where we got our first office, which was in Brixton. And with the friends and family round, we were able to secure this office, be able to buy a couple more vans and convert them. But at at this point, we were buying really old transits. And we got into a situation where actually, you know, they were breaking down. We were spending this money on actually fixing the van rather than actually using it to make revenue. Then we started buying newer vans and we used the pre-seed round to do this. And we actually employed a couple more people, but we kept the team really lean. You know, we didn't want to spend all our money at once. Darren especially knew that actually raising is quite hard for a very young team with a very early product. And thankfully, we brought on a few really big investors and our advisory team has grown with this. And they've helped us to be able to raise more rounds in the future and also kind of given us the advice we need in terms of who to contact, when we should contact them, how to create a pitch deck. I remember at uni, like looking at all this kind of stuff. And it's very interesting how people that have been in the game this long know exactly what to do whereas if you search online you'll kind of get very different responses so it's it's just really good to have the kind of mentorship and to have the advice so we can actually succeed and do it correctly rather than going up to people showing what we have and then rejecting us on the spot talking to the professionals talking to these investors they imparted all this wisdom on you that you wouldn't have been able to have got through Google alone? In terms of the startup world and kind of running a business, your network is, you know, one of the most important things. If you don't have that, straight away start connecting with people, talking to people and getting advice. Would you say that it was helpful to get this mentorship then? A hundred percent. I think having a network and these advisors to mentor you is one of the most important things in running a startup. 
they have years and years of knowledge on you that actually you can get in a second rather than making the mistakes like some of them did. But like, we don't have to make those same mistakes. It's like when you're younger and your parents are always telling you to do stuff, not to do stuff. When you grow up, you kind of realise that they're telling you not to do this stuff because they've made the mistakes, possibly. And you know that they don't want their child to make it as well. Were they key to helping you hiring your team? Did they give you a lot of advice around that? Our team's been quite tight anyway. A lot of the members of the team in the past especially have been kind of friends friends of friends because you know we haven't had so much money we haven't been able to just hire someone for 40k you know and it just be like normal we've had to really kind of all struggle together build this company which is bigger than all of us so we weren't able to just you know go on to indeed and hire the best of the best people for 100 200k but we had to get really excited invested people into the company and provide a little bit of equity so they would believe in the product and work as hard as all the kind of founders did and so let's talk about your team give us the reasons why you hired certain members of the team or why you have job opportunities for certain roles so currently the team's still relatively small but I think it's really important to hire the right people and to hire people that are really engaged with the product we're creating and also excited to come to work every day. I know that sounds really cliche, but it is actually really important to a company. So currently in the team is myself as CTO, Liam as COO and Darren as CEO. So under Liam, we have Isabel and Cam and they kind of form the operations team. So currently under myself, we have Jeff, who's a senior web developer, and he was brought in about, gosh, it must be about four months ago. It feels like yesterday, to be honest, but he's an amazing developer. He's helped us build out our website, currently building out our customer booking site, and also helps us on the back end. And now Trimit is getting bigger, and the amount of products that we're actually producing is increasing. I really do need to take a step back on the actual development. I've been told by a lot of mentors and a lot of advisors that being a CTO isn't just about coding. And it's something I've learned quite recently. So we've actually put out a job offer for a back-end developer and their skill set will be creating and improving our Node API using GraphQL to connect up our, all our products and also make sure our product is fully scalable. Currently, we're using AWS Lambda, which is auto-scaling, and RDS Aurora for our database, which is also auto-scaling. However, you know, when you're actually building an application and when you're actually thinking about how do I make it scalable, people always talk about making sure your server's scalable, your database is scalable, but no one really talks about actually the other APIs you use. For example, Google for location-based data, Twilio for sending out texts, or even stuff like Intercom for customer service. But actually, it's super important for your systems to be as efficient as possible because it actually just costs you more money to use them. And I know this sounds really simple, but at university, I remember getting talk big O notation. And it was all about how many times one line runs on your program. And they always explained it that you know you want your code to be really efficient, really fast. But the thing that clocked it for me is that if your code is super efficient, 
most of the time you could actually half or quarter the cost per request on your application. So it's really interesting how you're talking about making your code more efficient so that when you're retrieving this information from the likes of Google or the likes of Twilio. So if anyone knows, Google offers these map locations and you've got Mapbox, you're talking about maps and you're also talking about Twilio, which is sending text messages. If you condense the lowest amount of requests you can, basically what you can do is then reduce the cost. Yeah, definitely. So going onto our app even and checking for any availability around your area does cost us money. So we need to make sure that we're doing as much stuff as possible to make this as efficient. So, you know, if a hundred people come onto the app and it costs a penny to load up the availability system, for example, a pound isn't too much. But if a million people start coming onto the app, then hundreds of thousands of pounds, it's going to get unscalable, and especially if they don't book. So we do a lot of things to estimate travel times before asking Google. So if anyone's listener has actually been to London, you know you can't drive 60 miles an hour in London. You'd be lucky to drive 20 miles an hour through Central. So what we actually do is we do our own maths. We calculate the distance by longitude and latitude coordinates or two different points. And then we say, okay, cool. If you can't drive 60 miles an hour across London and fill it in, there's no point talking to Google and asking, can you do the actual travel time? If you're asking for things over the internet, Obviously, that can get quite slow if you're requesting constantly. What you can do is by slowing down these requests, you actually can speed up your app as well. That's something we noticed in a, in a recent project that we did. So what about Darren and his part of the team? That's marketing and sales, I'm assuming. Yes. So Darren's in charge of more of the kind of sales and marketing side of the company. And under him, we have Maz, who's our head of marketing. And we also have Sam, who does our social media. I would say that that's an important part of your growth going forwards. Are you developing processes, systems or SOPs, standing operating procedures, to help you guide and automate your business going forwards? Definitely. I mean, in terms of even marketing, we send out a lot of automated processes, a lot of automated push notifications, email marketing, text messages. Currently, what we're doing is creating a system, actually, which predicts when someone needs a haircut. So I know this sounds pretty simple. You might get your haircut every four weeks, two weeks, six weeks, and just kind of automatically sending out a push notification when it's due. But actually, what we want to do is it's all about creating the most efficient route for the barber, because at the end of the day, we want the barber to make the most amount of money. What we can do is we can actually use their previous longitude and latitude coordinates or previous bookings and their previous booking history in terms of when they'd like to normally get the haircut in terms of if it's every Monday at five o'clock and send a push notifications to certain events prior to them booking. So actually we can say, hey, Chris, we know that you've got a haircut due soon. Why don't you book in this slot and we'll give you a free travel fee? Because, you know, it's more efficient for the barber and actually he might be able to fit someone in. How did you know I needed a haircut? <laughs> Thanks to Peter Lloyd, the co-founder of Trimit. So that's the end of the How to Make an App series, where we've covered why you might decide to build an app, coming up with your idea, validating it, and then prototyping your app. What is an MVP and creating your design specification? How to get your app funded, whether through an investor or grants? 
how to get your app built by an agency or freelancer, launching and marketing your app, and how to scale your app to more users. And if you'd like a cheat sheet for this episode, please go to www.hair.digital forward slash how to make an app. It's been a pleasure to bring you this six part series as we went on a journey. Big thanks to my special guests, Phil Watton, Ian Wakeman and Peter Lloyd, who shared some incredible insights from their own experiences. And thanks to Georgina Smith and the University of Sussex for organising this great podcast. And thanks to our producer, Graham Seaman, who made us sound amazing. That was How to Make an App. This has been a Fresh Air production for the University of Sussex.